0: Every Wednesday after school, we went around and picked up all the litter. Didn't get that much attention from the girls, but the janitors loved us.
1: What did you end up spending money on looking back that you kind of regret?
0: We invested heavily in... My name is Ryan Buckley. I live in Walnut Creek in the East Bay of San Francisco. I am serial and also a bit of a parallel entrepreneur. Started out my career immediately after business school, building scripted.com, a marketplace for freelance writers. Find them, hire them, manage large and small, but most of our clients tended to leverage multiple writers doing hundreds, if not thousands of unique pieces every month. I exited that business and fell back on a side project that I had started a number of years ago called Toofer, which is in the email guessing, sales tech, lead generation space. Basically, you give it someone's name, the company they work at, and it will find the right email address for that person. It is really, really useful for sales reps, for recruiters. And most of my customers, my best customers are actually using the API to directly tap into the data and the scripts that will do a lot of real-time searching for email addresses as well. And then I got a few other businesses running on the side, trying to get multiple income streams spun up now that I don't have the security of a day job.
1: Maybe non-technical people who are listening, what's API? The
0: API, it stands for Application Programming Interface, which actually does a decent job of describing what it is. But you could think of it as like a port or like a a connector into a website that makes it much easier for you to put information in and pull information out. So it's something that's like built for other websites to connect to it.
1: And for example, Facebook does not allow you to have their API, right? So people can't get that information, even though almost everyone in the world wants it.
0: (laughs) Well, they have, Facebook has a ton of APIs. Each one of their products or services has an API. Their ad manager has an API. Their messenger product has an API. But in terms of their social graph, they do restrict it a fair bit. You have to be very transparent with them about what information you want out of it and why you want it. And it appears that they review every request personally. And do you know that from experience with Twofer? No, no, actually, I don't scrape any sites, actually. In the early days, I did. But that was before LinkedIn really started to take a hammer down on anybody tapping into their system. And they used to have an API, but they've actually restricted it. They've really tightened it up and prevented people from scraping their sites. So if anyone from LinkedIn is listening, I am not one of those people trying to break through it. I don't touch LinkedIn at all. What made you want to be an entrepreneur? I had the itch from a really, really early age. I'd say it actually goes back to high school. Believe it or not, my first real brush with entrepreneurship involved picking up trash. It's just something that had bothered me. My grandpa wouldn't walk by a piece of litter without picking it up. And so from a really early age, that was kind of my thing. And my friends would go to Seven Eleven and buy some Slurpees and they'd ride their bikes ahead of me and they'd go, hey, Ryan, they'd hold up the Slurpee and then they'd drop it. They'd just wait for me to go over and pick up the Slurpee and take it over to a trash can. They'd laugh, of course, but this was like kind of my thing. So in high school, I actually was able to get some other people together. Every week, every Wednesday after school, we went around and picked up all the litter. Didn't get that much attention from the girls, but the janitors loved us. They actually gave us our own trash can that we wheeled around. That was really like the first thing that I built, like the first organization that I built and did more of that kind of stuff in college, also in the environmental space. And then got really curious about web and programming after, it was really not until after graduate school. And where'd you go to school? So undergrad at UC Berkeley, just over the hill from where I live now. Went to graduate school and was able to get uh, two master's degrees at the roughly the same time from the Harvard Kennedy Schools, a master in public policy, and an MBA from MIT.
1: I guess regular community
0: college. <laughs> no, no, this was a lot more expensive than that.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Then I think that's part of the reason that you brought that up about entrepreneurship, about paying those loans back, right?
0: Yeah. Fast forwarding a bit, I actually started the first web product that I built was just about 10 years ago, it was 2007. I had just started at Harvard at the Kennedy School. I'd worked in LA and I met some guys there who I decided to start a business with. And the idea was let's do screenwriting online. Like let's build the first Google Docs. This was even before Google Docs existed, but it was Google Docs for screenplays. So spun that up, you know, like I was of course in in school, but I had a bunch of student loans. I was feeling flush with cash. My co-founder was at the UCLA Business School. We just decided to go for it and kept going for it after I graduated. Then got, there's a one-year grace period on my loans. But once that was lifted, it was $1,700 a month. Like that was brutal. That was like more than the rent that we paid in San Francisco. Of course, we weren't paying ourselves very much. I was actually losing money every month. So that was Part of the allure of putting a paywall up on Tufer and the original scripts for Tufer I had already written on my own time and, and then also a little bit on behalf of some clients that had hired me to do some lead generation for them. I took that, that know-how, that information, rewrote everything, and then threw it up on a website to start helping me pay off my student loans.
1: Twofer's been around for about how long? Four years now.
0: And you're the sole guy there? I am the sole guy. But
1: four, when you're at scripted, could you tell us about how big the company was and maybe more of your day to day, what you learned?
0: Yeah. So my co-founder was the CEO and I was this like the COO. He was the outside guy. I was the inside guy. And that was actually a really good way to split responsibilities in the early days. So we were running that screenwriting site from 2007 till roughly 2011. When we decided to do the stereotypical hard pivot, we were in over our heads in debt. Like I remember, we didn't have enough cash in the bank to pay the interest payment on the credit card. Not just the the interest, the yeah, principal <laughs> itself. Yeah, yeah, we just couldn't. We couldn't even pay interest. So there were like multiple times when we were like literally just skimming the bottom of our bank account. We just couldn't really make the screenwriting site work. It maxed out at like fifteen thousand dollars per month in various revenue stream contests, and we put a subscription product in there. And anyway couldn't make it work. But we took the best writers from that screenwriting site and we made them the supply side of a content marketing marketplace. So businesses come in and hire writers. So that was the big like aha 2011 moment. We pretty quickly within a year raised a million dollar seed round from Crosslink Capital. A couple of years later, we raised four and a half led by Redpoint Ventures.
1: And before we jump too far forward throughout the story, once you got that million dollars, what'd that feel like? I guess comparatively where you were just skimming by, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it literally felt like a million bucks. It, <laughs> was, it was And that's why you're on
1: millionaire interviews.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that was probably the high point of maybe that's not fair to say, not the highest point, but it was definitely a high point of scripted. And so at the time we were probably six employees. We'd had some angel money kind of trickle in and finally got Crosslink Capital to come in and top us off to a million.
1: Can you tell us about that capital when you're raising yeah. it? So for people who haven't and are wondering about the process, I guess you haven't done that no. up to that point, right? So no. just tell us what you do when you go ahead and try to get capital and what was your experience?
0: So the game has already changed like several times since this was like a late 2011 raise. So we're already talking like this was six years ago. At that time, you still needed to have revenue, like real revenue. We had probably had about 50, maybe 50 to a hundred thousand dollars in revenue when we were able to raise, you know, 10 X that a million dollars on a decent growth clip on a team of maybe not even six, I think, cause we made a couple of hires as soon as that last money came in. So we were probably like three or four people at the time, not losing very much money because we didn't have any to lose. So we were effectively break even those were the vital stats at that time. Now, if... Were you single at the time? I was not single, but also not yet married. I met my girlfriend, wife-to-be when I was in business school. So we moved from Boston back to San Francisco. And yeah, we were... So she was working at like a cupcake store and I was doing this. So between the two of us, we were making like no money, but she was always very supportive. So that, that certainly helped. There weren't kids in the equation then is six years later. Like now, now here we are, kids and a dog and everything. White picket fence? Practically, yeah. Gray wooden fence. It was definitely like the cliche, hardworking San Francisco startup. I think like, you know a lot of people think of cliche startups as like climbing walls and ball pits, but that wasn't us at all. That never really was our culture. But I do think of it as like your young kind of ambitious, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, eager, excited. Like we had this really, really great little team and we had this community of funders who were anxious and excited to support us. That was a really, really fun time.
1: I guess after you get the million dollars, why don't you just walk us through, and that was year 2011?
0: Yeah, that was 2011.
1: Any important points that you, looking back during those first couple of years, maybe the people listening could benefit from?
0: Yeah, I, I think... I'd put it this way. So when I look back on my time at Scripted in hindsight, I think at some point in the in the interview we'll catch up to current days and why I say in hindsight because I'm not there anymore. But in that period was probably the most creative and the the most I'd say like the most raw and just like pure form of entrepreneurship during that whole rise of scripted. What I mean by that is I think A million dollars was, it was a lot of money, but it wasn't too much. And it wasn't enough to really cloud our judgment because we had just come off having nothing. And I think we had still maintained this leanness and scrappiness. And it was actually future fundraising rounds where I think we went a little bit off track as a result of no longer feeling sort of the urgency or the, burn literally we weren't feeling the cash burn and, and i think we just kind of got numb to it what did you
1: end up spending money on looking back that you kind of regret
0: we invested heavily in sales before we had our marketing machine up and running and when you do that it's kind of a vicious cycle you think you need to fix the problem by investing further in sales but in reality what we should have done was scrapped the sales team started over just hit the reset button figured out our marketing problems first. We know how to acquire them. We know how much it costs to acquire them. And we know what their lifetime value is. We didn't actually do that analysis until months before we sold. And that was a mistake.
1: Could you get more specific? You started two, but I don't know if we can't get any further. You're basically saying that you could easily have a better idea of how much value is being added by a marketing person versus a salesperson?
0: Well, yeah. My rationale for saying invest in marketing ahead of sales is several fold. Number one, marketing's cheaper than sales. Sales is, it's inherently headcount based. Like if you want to scale sales, you got to hire people. If you want to scale marketing, you can just throw more money at it. You can turn it off, you can turn it on. It's very easy to move money around. It's very easy to experiment with money. So it's cheaper because of that, because you don't have the three to six month ramp up time where you're just going to burn salary while you get that salesperson up to speed and then see if they can start to pay for themselves. You don't have that ramp up period with marketing. Marketing will always be cheaper than sales when it comes to experimenting. The other thing that's really important is the feedback loops with marketing are inherently faster. When you run ad campaigns, email marketing campaigns, when you're doing SEO, like even that will still take months, but you can kind of start to see the effects within weeks. Those faster feedback loops allow you to run more experiments in the same amount of time. Doing experiments with sales teams, it just takes a long time. Like it might take you a whole year in order to ramp up an experiment, run the experiment, and then wind it down and analyze it. Each one of those essentially takes a quarter to do. With marketing, it might take a month at the most because you get those faster feedback loops, you can collect data faster, which means you can hit at the fundamental equation of whether you're fundable, whether your business will ultimately succeed. Like I think this is the most critical thing that every business needs to know and most founders and don't figure it out for a really long time. It's, is the lifetime value of a customer greater than the cost to acquire them? And how much greater? Because ideally you want payback period to be less than a month. Those are the best businesses for certain enterprise company, like enterprise markets, maybe you have a 12 month payback period, but for most SaaS, you really ought to get it down to a month. What I mean by that is, let's just say you're selling something that is 200 bucks a month. Let's just maybe make it a little easier, say $250 a month. Your typical SaaS business, 20% cost, 80% margin. So you're getting $200 of profit each month for each customer. If you're on a one-month payback period, then you want to spend $200 to acquire that $250 a month customer because that customer is going to pay for themselves in one month that's what that payback period means. If it costs you a thousand dollars to acquire them because you have this big sales operation, or sometimes, you know, it could even be much, much larger than that. Then you're talking about five, 800. Sorry. If you're making 200 in profit mm-hmm. on a single customer and it's costing you $200 to get them, and then they're paying themselves off after one month. But if it costs a thousand dollars to get them, then it's going to take five months to mm-hmm. to pay them off. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at is oh, okay, gotcha. yeah, the yeah. higher the acquisition cost or the CAC, the longer the payback period. Often, I'd say far too often, that cost is just beyond the horizon of that customer. So if you know that someone's going to churn in a year, say, like for sure they're going to churn within a year and it costs you more than to acquire them, then you're just losing money. Like your business is circling the drain and that's because that's the, the 12 times 200 is $2,400. So like the most you could ever make on somebody is 2,400 bucks total. And you know, it's costing you more than that to acquire them when you add up all your sales expenses and all your marketing programs and everything. Yeah. Then your business is dying. And I think that that's just a reality that a lot of founders aren't willing to face or they are facing it, but they don't know it because either they're not collecting the data or they're not adding up the acquisition costs correctly.
1: I appreciate the specific numbers and details there. I guess I was just doing over a one month period versus you were doing five months. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, for those who don't have the calculators, we'll put that in the show notes just so it's it's easy. (laughs) But no, I really do appreciate it because a lot of people don't say anything in the numbers. And we want to mostly story here, but actually putting down simple numbers that make sense. I think that helps the people who are actually starting their own businesses here. Yeah. Did you figure that out now? I guess looking back, was the turn issue or like how much it was going to cost for this person? Or did you figure out that while you're still at scripted?
0: We didn't really figure it out until it was clear that we were going to have to sell the company for pennies on the dollar. We had run those numbers and like various investors had asked for him. But I think ultimately it was a combination of us not holding ourselves accountable and also our board not doing so either. At least they would hold us accountable for other things and what turned out to be the most important thing was was this it's not unusual like other companies can run by a playbook where your unit economics that's what this lifetime value over customer acquisition cost that's what this is called like it's called unit economics sometimes you can have bad unit economics and still make it If you're growing fast enough, if the market- Like Uber? Yeah, yeah. No, I (laughs) think exactly like Uber. They're making up for it in scale. If you're growing like a weed, then you can have faith that at some point you're going to hit this scale where all of those numbers kind of fall off a cliff or at least the acquisition cost kind of falls off a cliff. And then the unit economics are positive again, because your LTV is probably just going to be your LTV. And once everybody's talking about you, you sort of break through and then your acquisition cost plummets, then you make it. So one playbook is to just drive for that. Probably to some degree, that's what we and my board were shooting for. It's not necessarily like a negligent. It's not negligent at all, really. It's just like it was anyone's guess what the right strategy would be. I think for us, ultimately, it turned out to be the wrong one.
1: Is there anything in between that we should talk about before you sold the actual company, what that felt like and how you made the transition to Tufer
0: yeah, I think there's a lot that happened in between that first fundraise and and when we ultimately sold. we raised a total of sixteen million. There were three rounds total. We built up an enterprise sales team. We ultimately winded it down, but not after it took us two little over two years to do that whole cycle of building it up and winding it down. and that over those two years we burned about eight million dollars. There was my co-founder. Resigned from the company board, brought in an external CEO who lasted about a year. Really good guy, but couldn't make the couldn't take the heat. Well, also for family reasons, he was living in Maine and thought they were going to move out to San Francisco. And when that didn't happen, he had to he had to leave as a long commute. So then the board handed the CEO position over to me to basically find buyer.
1: How'd you find a buyer?
0: Well, so that's interesting. That is where twofer comes back into the story. Ooh, actually. I see this. I see
1: what you're doing here. And I've okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. I. So all along, twofer had been organically growing, kind of ups and downs, broke 200 grand in ARR a couple of years ago, held steady at down months, down quarters, up months, up quarters. I wasn't paying like a ton of attention to it. It was just going. I was taking out my frustrations at scripted and the uncertainty of scripted. And I just like, it would boil over. I would channel that into Twofer. I would just go home, put my headphones on when my wife was asleep and then just like knock out features and code, do aggressive marketing and like everything that I wish I could control and do it scripted, I would do with Twofer. It was like my outlet. And so I think that's what got it to the point where it started to get attention from these I don't know what you call them. They're almost like a subclass of private equity. They are individual and then some organizations that buy sub million dollar annual revenue software as a service companies. I started talking to those guys. They were reaching out to me. One of them is the principal uh, behind Xenon Ventures, a guy named Jonathan Siegel, like amazing entrepreneur, extremely bright, high integrity. He and I. Kind of got to be friends. He made me an offer for Twofer. I turned him down. We stayed in touch and I was keeping him updated on scripted because I just wanted like an an ear to kind of bounce the play-by-play off of because he's seen a million deals before. And then one day he just offered to buy it. (laughs) We got a couple other term sheets, but decided to go with him.
1: So you got the term sheet and I guess you were doing Twofer on the side. How much time were you putting into it?
0: It was probably on average for sure less than an hour a day. If I added it all up, maybe a couple hours on the weekend and then maybe three nights a week for an hour, I'd say like five, five to six hours a week.
1: Maybe I jumped and I thought what you're going to do with Twofer is that you're going to use that to actually find someone to sell the... Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) I guess maybe I should let you tell the story next time. I'm like, okay, I know what he's going to do. I'm like, no, I'm wrong for usual. But okay, so (laughs) as you're doing that Twofer, are you doing it more for fun or are you doing it because you need money, like personally?
0: It started out for fun to learn how to program. So prior to Twofer, I didn't know how to code. I'd watched the engineers we hired build scripts and scripted and I was very curious about it but I didn't have any experience with it until in between the screenwriting product that was script and then the marketplace scripted I was at another startup in their sales department learned python programming there got a little hooked on it and so those were the guys that had me continue doing lead gen for them so essentially paying me to further develop these python scripts keep feeding them lists while I was starting to kick off scripted. I needed that extra income. I was still like barely breaking even, losing money most months, but it was because of that side income that I was able to kind of have any glimmer of hope that we were going to be okay. Once that contract went away, I think they paid me for another six months. That's when I was like, shoot, this is taking a lot of time. Let's put this on a website. And then I think I maybe spent two weeks just crash coursing myself website development. It's like very different when you're running scripts on your local computer versus running scripts on a web server and dealing with people logging in and out and like all of that kind of stuff. But I loved it. And like really programming for me today, I still love it as aggravating as it can be sometimes like with the various bugs and all that kind of stuff. The immediate gratification you get from web development or like any kind of software development probably, but all I do is web now it's a high, it's kind of a dopamine rush. So I do it for enjoyment. I needed the extra income to pay off student debt, eventually did that. And then it's like, okay, what's next? Let's say for a house. Okay. Did that. And now kind of holding out. I want to grow Tufer to the point where I can sell it, pay off my mortgage. That would be a game changer for me to pay off the house.
1: Can you tell us your first monetization of Tufer, like how you came about it and how much it was?
0: So I put the paywall up in January, 2013, that full year, it made $3,000. How much were you charging people? Like how did that payment work? It was a subscription. So it's it's always been a subscription. I had the option to do one-off credit purchases. And I think that 3,000 was probably a mix of both. And these were friends I'd been telling about my script and I was doing this for scripted in the early days as well. Email marketing was awesome. For scripted in the early days. I was getting more plugged into the sales technology community in San Francisco, meeting a bunch of those people, talking about Twofer. They were signing up, telling their friends. It did have this like a bit of a small scale, like viral effect to it. And those were the first customers. It was purely through word of mouth, a tiny bit of email marketing I didn't do any digital marketing until earlier this year when I went full-time on Tufer and had the time to experiment with it. Did it for three months, decided it doesn't work. My pricing is too low, I think.
1: And what's digital marketing versus the other, hopefully most people understand email marketing.
0: Yeah. Digital marketing is the broad category of pay-per-click of putting up Google AdWords, Facebook ads, LinkedIn, or Twitter ads. That's the most common kind of digital marketing.
1: And for growth, so you didn't want to hire salespeople?
0: No, no, it's a joke. <laughs> uh, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm listening, to, yeah, I'm listening to, to what you're saying. Here. Yeah. What's the one best thing that you did when you did two for as far as the marketing wise? And I agree that it's so much easier to track and easier to turn on, turn off. But is there one thing that you can point to that really helped that maybe other people could use for their side businesses?
0: Kept it simple, kind of by necessity, because I, I built it myself, and and I was just learning to program at the time. But ultimately, I think that helped when anyone would ask me what Twofer does or what it is. I was like, "Well, it finds email addresses." Like, "Oh, that's okay, I get it." Being able to describe your product in so few words is is really powerful makes it easier for search engine marketing, for email marketing, for digital marketing, all of that. The SEO side, I got some early traction in search engine optimization because I was one of the first email guessing sites to be out there. And now there's like three dozen of them but yours is the best though right i think so i think it still is i'm getting hammered by a couple other guys on the seo front but i think i still have the best algorithms
1: well what do you mean by that what are they doing on the seo end that they're hammering you
0: yeah i don't know they're
1: you want me to interview them and find out who are they
0: yeah no please do i'll
1: let you know their secrets
0: no it's actually it's it's a team of guys i really respect they're called hunter.io formerly email hunter. They're like four or five guys in Europe. I follow them on Twitter. They have retreats in Rome and Greece and Spain, and they're all technical. So they have a bigger team. I think they they beat me to the punch on, on a few techniques, like having company directories. And they also are doing a freemium, much more freemium than I am. Like you sign up for two free, you get 30 free credits they give 100 free credits every month. Mine is just one time. I think they have to deal with a lot more server infrastructure needs. I'm sure their cogs are much higher than mine, but they're probably making a lot more revenue too. I respect their product a lot, but I'm just going to continue to specialize on my one thing. And they're they're kind of expanding into other features and product areas as well.
1: Have you ever thought about reaching out to them to see if they'd be interested in
0: joining? Oh, no. I follow them on Twitter and I've tweeted my congrats to them and basically said exactly what I just said via Twitter. And yeah, we follow each other. So it's like we're, we're friends, friend predators in a way. Hey, maybe one day they'll buy two for, I'd be happy to sell to them. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that hard working by yourself now versus before?
0: I went full-time in April 2017 on to twofers. We shut down the scripted office and the team started to work at the new company's place and I just came home. Not really. I do miss the sense of team. Like I miss being able to get excited with other people and share in the highs and share in the lows. But it would not be accurate to say I work alone because I have, my wife works from home. I have a one-year-old daughter who who uh, will not be in preschool for another six months. I have a dog, I have some other neighbors that have really flexible schedules. So I'm seeing people a lot, like it's not like I'm a hermit. I think this is a great time for me to be spending a lot of time at home. Just so much quality time with the family in the last eight months and you know, for the foreseeable future too. I don't think Tufer will ever have an office if it grows. And I did actually make my first part-time hire last month. I hired a content marketing manager, someone to help me do all sorts of stuff, mostly blog.
1: Yeah. What's that mean? Yeah. Sorry. I guess you're saying. Yeah. Like
0: well, um, she's essentially a writer, but she does more than that. She formats a blog post, finds images, and then actually publishes them onto my twofer blog. So she goes a few steps further than what we did at Scripted. And I understand it's a little bit ironic that I'm not just using Scripted right now, but I (laughs) I am actually doing what I told when I was on the sales team and I led the sales team for a while at Scripted. We always told people, hey, hire a writer first. When you're first starting out and you're trying to scale your content marketing, hire your own writer. Like, don't go through us. Like, hire someone. When you're ready to scale, go to Scripted. And then that writer who you hired, have them manage your Scripted account, which is actually exactly the pathway that I would take. I just happened to find someone who's great. I love her attitude. I love her writing style. And she's fun to work with. She's in Florida. And that's been working out really well. And she just does a couple posts a week for me.
1: And how did you find her?
0: RemoteOK.io. I posted on a few specific like digital nomad sites. These are people who are only looking for remote work.
1: I guess I'm trying to understand like a content marketer say if they're a one-off person or maybe it's a guy who's like starting an awesome podcast. Would you (laughs) say that he needs to have a content marketer?
0: Well, yeah, I'd say, so if I were you, I mean, you're not,
1: Uh, I I, I didn't know I was talking about (laughs) me. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Are
0: you transcribing these things? Yeah, we have show notes on well, who's them, we but they're
1: bullet points. I've got a couple of virtual assistants that help me in the Philippines. Okay.
0: Okay. I see. Okay. okay. But their
1: English is not all the way to I don't know, probably someone in Florida, but yeah. it gets the job done. Right. But I I've always thought there's different ways to add more content to it.
0: So like I worked with a bunch of people in Philippines and India and Pakistan before as well. Phenomenal people, like hard workers. Most of them actually speak really, really good English too. What you'll get out of a content marker that you wouldn't get out of a virtual assistant or like an overseas writer who's not, who doesn't have English as their first language, is kind of like an additional level of insight. She actually worked in digital marketing, like she worked at a company that does. Adds like ad optimization and, and runs ad campaigns. So like, so she understands who the customer is and then just brings in a flavor to her writing where it's like, obviously someone who's a millennial in the United States. Like you just kind of read it and, and it has a different energy to it, which I don't know how important it is necessarily for the two for blog. It's not like there's a ton of people reading it, but it's my homepage, <laughs> but I will, you know, promote them on LinkedIn and LinkedIn is becoming a better and better source of referral traffic. I'm going to have her do more and more, not just blog writing, but like, Website content writing, she's also, I gave her access to my SEMrush, semrush.com account. So she's going to also be clicking through there, looking for insights in SEO, helping me identify keywords that I should be going after, that kind of stuff. It's, It's a level of analysis and insight beyond what you'd expect from just anyone.
1: So I guess looking back so far or ahead, what do you think is going to be your biggest challenge or what has been your biggest hurdles that you've overcome so far?
0: So right now it is prioritizing within my businesses and between my businesses. So I now have for I have Enlistio, which tracks job changes, turns bounced emails into good emails by figuring out if they change jobs or not, and then getting their new email address. And then enps.co is uh employee net promoter score. So like completely different market, trying to diversify a little bit. And then a couple others that I'm also spinning up as we speak. Another one that I put basically all day into yesterday. I found that it's really hard to be building, maintaining, and growing companies all at the same time, like different companies. Three different things. The yeah, same... there's three different things. I need to get all my horses in a row. So that everyone is in the grow and maintain mode. Cause it's just like kind of different parts of my brain. Like it's, it's harder to toggle in between when I have like urgent bug problems on one app. And then I'm, I'm still trying to like get the first app over the minimum viable product hurdle. So that's been hard. And then
1: how do you keep all this organized? Like uh, financially, is it all underneath like one yeah. LLC, Ryan Buckley it LLC, is. and then three I'm good. All right.
0: It, <laughs> it is. I've really come to embrace Trello. Every company has a Trello board and I I keep everything organized that way. I love Trello for parallel entrepreneurship. I think it's great. And structurally, everything is under Twofer LLC. If I ever sold Twofer, I can do basically an asset sale, like they can keep the name. I would just put everything else under a new LLC. So essentially like I have the umbrella thing, but it has, just happens to be called Twofer LLC. I've considered renaming it, but like whatever. Not worth the money. Yeah, I'll just, I'll do it whenever, if and when I ever sell Twofer. Interesting you brought that up because, so I'd say that that's my biggest challenge is the prioritization. The biggest accomplishments I've done recently is I finished writing a book on parallel entrepreneurship. ParallelEntrepreneurship.com is actually the website, the marketing site that I've put up for it, where I talk about, there's a section on how do you structure this legally? I am talking to an accountant in a few days to get her quotes, but I've kind of like put all of my experience into the book now. And I'm right now over the next month, I'm interviewing people to get their quotes and just to double check, kind of fact check myself. I'm gonna publish my first book, Probably officially in like February or March next year. That's my goal. I had set last April, I had three goals for myself when I left Scripted and went full time onto Twofer is one, get another income stream other than Twofer and or solidify Twofer so that I feel very confident that it's not gonna I'm not gonna have to go back to an office job. And I think I've done that. I can kind of check that one off. Two was write a book. And so now I've done that. And then three is find, figure out my pathway into public office, which has kind of been a lifelong dream. Going back full circle now, I know we're coming up on an hour, but to that environmental stuff I did in high school and college, I'd always wanted to get into uh, to the public sector. I just turned 35 a few months ago. Congrats! Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I made it. So now I, I need to put the building blocks for a pretty significant career transition. So- I'm giving myself until next April. So it's basically this past April to next April, I wanted to get all of those three things done. And like tonight I'm going to gonna see my local assembly woman, person who represents my district. And then I'm going to another thing with the chair of the county Democrats to start networking my way in to figure out how this works. So yeah. That's what I'm proud of now. And
1: parallel entrepreneurship uh, that we're talking yeah. about. Discuss what that is.
0: So it's the idea that everyone talks about side hustles.
1: I mean, goodness. Yeah. Your side hustle. I just keep hearing side. Yeah. Hu- guy, you know. <laughs> Everyone's talking about side. Like
0: your your podcast is basically a, a side hustle to your commercial brokerage. It's the idea that you can have multiple side hustles. I'm very specific in the book about how to do it with SaaS businesses. I think it would be challenging for you to do multiple podcasts. So maybe that doesn't make sense, but doing multiple SaaS businesses is absolutely doable. I'm finding it's it's challenging right now, the stage that I'm in and spinning things up and maintaining and growing all at once. But once everything is at the same level and I can just kind of do them all, like they're all at the same stage, Then I think it'll get a lot easier. So I'm writing about the theory behind why this is a good idea. Why, as entrepreneurs, we should diversify our time and not just be all in on one project. Why investors can diversify. Like there are board members at Scripted. They were on like five or six boards. Like that's kind of the the number that they have. Is they're making five or six investments. They're actively involved in five or six companies at once. Why is it that? as entrepreneurs and founders, we're not allowed to do that as well. Like, why can't I also be in five or six companies at once, committed to all of them, running all of them? And you have at the highest levels, like Jack Dorsey being CEO of two public companies, Elon Musk. I think SpaceX is still private, but you know, Tesla's public, SpaceX is private, Boring companies private. Like, he's got multiple CEO hats on. He can do it. Dorsey can do it. Obviously, they're the superhumans doing it at the highest scale possible, but at the opposite end of the spectrum, just like little teeny tiny businesses like mine, it should also be doable to run multiple businesses at once. And one of your streams can be a day job. So that is the thesis behind it and then go into theory and then go into tactics.
1: Hopefully when that comes out, I think it makes sense. I think that's going to happen to a lot more quote unquote, like regular day job people where the, the companies are going to hire people more as like freelancers right. versus their nine to five. So most people might have two jobs five, 10 years from now. So I, I could see that definitely being a good read and understanding that, yeah, you don't have to just stick to one thing. It, it makes sense that whenever, like you were saying, there's angel investors or whatever. I mean, they're diversifying in how many companies and just betting at least on one. There, there's a reason they're diversifying. So. Yep. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Is there any last thing that you think anyone who wants to start a business or get into entrepreneurship, what they should know or wish you knew when
0: you started? It's important to realize that the sooner you start, the better. And just like starting a family, there is no perfect time to do it. You just do it. And I think the entrepreneurs that are successful are the ones that don't delay, don't wait, don't overthink it. If you want to do it, it's absolutely possible to do it. You don't need to quit your day job to start a business. You should start a business and then quit your day job or not or keep it. But the idea that you have to quit something to start something else is wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically you can do anything. I mean, it's just, a, do you want to put the time in? And it? it's like you put the time in. Well, for in the beginning. And if anyone wants to say thank you for doing the podcast interview, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: at rbucks on twitter r-b-u-c-k-s and ryan at T O O F R t-o-o-f-r.com is the email that i check the most all right ryan well thank
1: you for coming on the podcast
0: you're welcome austin good to be here thanks for
1: tuning in to this awesome episode hope you enjoyed it After careful deliberation, I have decided to release my top 10 episodes. So get out your pen and paper and write down these episode numbers. Episode 2 with Matt Gallant. Episode 11 with Eli Crane. Episode 24 with Jonathan Burlingham. Episode 32 with Adrian Salomunovich. And try episode 34 with Don D. Costanza episode 36 with Dan Fantasia episode 38 with Aaron Krauss and then try episode 39 with Luther Cyphers and our last two episodes here episode 62 with Andrew Sykes and episode 63 with Dan Cohen thanks again for listening and don't forget we're a virtual family here at millionaire interviews that means you the listener the guests, the editors, and the host, And so don't forget our... Hell is a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother.
0: Here it is.
1: Share the podcast.